Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we hear the music from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, made in 1984. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Hi everybody, hope you have gotten your fill of chilled monkey brains because you're going to need lots of fuel as we go through this discussion of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. A lot of expectations were riding on this film and some people believe Steven Spielberg delivered a great film while others were left scratching their heads about what they saw unfolding on the screen. One person who counts this as a great accomplishment is Eric Woods, the founder and main host of Cinematic Sound Radio. Eric has been discussing film music before podcasts were around, broadcasting through Canadian radio, but now has found a global audience through his podcasts. Eric, I am honored to have you join me today on The Baton. It's my absolute pleasure, Jeff. Uh, thank you very much for, for having me. I'm a big fan of the show, and I uh, can't wait to jump into today's score review of Temple of Doom. It's one of my all-time favorite scores. I strongly urge you to visit cinematicsound.net to learn all about the shows Eric produces with other hosts and catch up on his very, very thorough discussions of very well-known and some not-so-well-known film scores. So, Eric, when you asked to be a part of this episode, you said you were willing to defend this film's merits until your dying day. Why do you believe Temple of Doom has so much hate? Well... You know, Steven Spielberg has gone on the record denouncing uh, the film. Um, back in 1989, you know, Spielberg said the following, and I quote, I wasn't happy with the second film at all. It was too dark, too subterranean, and much too horrific. I thought it outpoltered poltergeist. There's not an ounce of my own personal feeling in Temple of Doom, end quote. Well, I think he said the only redeeming quality of the film was the fact that he met his future wife on the project. So those comments bother me because that sort of negativity trickles down to the general public. And I've also read other comments from viewers about how it doesn't feel like a Raiders picture. Well, I, you know, I feel that's, that's the point really. I mean, the last thing you want is a retread of the familiar, which to me is what a lot of uh, Last Crusade did. So it's clear to me that Temple of Doom is an underrated picture. I mean, it's, it's its own thing. Yes, it was dark and has a far more serious tone, but, you know, George Lucas was going through a divorce. Steven Spielberg's marriage was on the rocks. You know, the two were in a bad place, and I think they used that to their advantage. Like the song at the beginning of the film says, anything goes, and this film does just that. I think the writing is strong and witty, the dialogue is superb. There's no better example of the quick, sharp dialogue than during Indy's meeting with Lao Shea at the beginning of the film. 
Nothing feels out of place or is forced. There's great action, brilliant cinematography, incredible sound design. This movie sounds amazing. And of course, you have John Williams's brilliant score. And kind of to talk about that dark tone again, you have to understand that Lucas's idea to make The Empire Strikes Back much darker in tone appealed to Spielberg as well for the second Indiana Jones film. And also to piggyback on the comment you made about Spielberg's negative comments about Temple of Doom trickling down to the general public's views, he did the same thing with 1941. But with Temple of Doom, Spielberg had a lot of pressure on him. He was coming off the monstrous success of E.T. the Extraterrestrial, which became the biggest movie of all time. Hollywood and filmgoers were hoping that lightning would strike twice, but Spielberg didn't seem to be interested in that. To that end... He and Lucas came up with the idea of making the sequel a prequel, placing our hero in 1935, just one year before the events of Raiders of the Lost Ark. They also invented a secret cult in India that sacrificed people and enslaved children. And the portrayal of that culture on the Indian subcontinent was deemed so offensive that Spielberg was denied access to that country for filming. Things didn't improve when Harrison Ford injured his back during a fight scene, but just as he had done for E.T., Spielberg managed to finish filming on time and a little under budget. Yeah, Spielberg was was such an efficient and economic director at this time, you know, especially after going over budget on films like Jaws, Close Encounters in 1941. And thank goodness for George Lucas, who uh, essentially grounded him on Raiders. Um, but, uh, you know, before we jump into the film score, um, I thought it'd be a good idea to, you know, chat about the, the main characters and why they work in this movie. Um, you know, our main character, Indiana Jones, of course, you know, for the only time in any of the four Indiana Jones films plays an actual hero. And I I mean, I guess you can say he was heroic in saving his father in Last Crusade, but, you know, he's really a genuine hero. He genuinely saves the day in this movie. And his heroic turn begins in the middle of the film after stealing the stones of the temple. You know, but then he hears the cries of the slave children and goes to check it out. And he's willing to sacrifice the stones and his life to help protect the kids, you know, first by throwing a rock at the guard's head. And then after saving Willie, uh, replies to Willie when she says, quote, Indy, now let's get out of here. And Indy puts on his hat, spins around and says, right, all of us. And I don't know about you, but I get shivers just talking about this and, Just on that point about the children, you can tell that the stealing of the children bothered Indy early in the film when he was translating the shaman's story of the missing stones and children back in the village. So Harrison Ford is absolutely brilliant in this film. He's he's in top form. Uh, Much has been made also about how annoying Willie and Short Round are, but let's talk about Willie first. Willie's essentially the anti-Marian. You know, it was a wise choice uh, if you aren't bringing back Marion to create a character that is the polar opposite. Willie is the traditional damsel in distress, which is something that was featured in numerous Saturday afternoon serials of Lucas and Spielberg's youth. Uh, she's a fish out of water who hinders Indy's journey and is essentially the comic relief. And as for Short Round, well, this is the closest we'll get to a true paternal relationship for Indiana Jones. And yes, of course, we know that Indy's son is in the fourth film, but 
you know, there was zero chemistry between Shia LaBeouf and, and Harrison Ford, in my opinion. However, in Temple of Doom, Indy treats Shorty as his own son, and you can tell that they've been friends for a very, very long time. This is best shown during the uh, the charming card game scene in the middle of the jungle where Shorty accuses Indy of cheating, only to show that it was Shorty that was cheating the entire time. These small moments between the two cement their relationship and why Short Round is willing to do anything for Indy, and Indy in turn will do anything for Short Round. I have some issues with the film, but I really like the idea of making Willie as different from Marion as possible. And in a way, Short Round was just like the Ewoks. Cute, but feisty, and can kick butt when they needed to. And that relationship between Indy and Short Round was so good. I wish Shorty had returned for one of the sequels, because I've always wanted to know what happened to him after Temple of Doom. I really do enjoy what John Williams did with the score as well. With one exception, there seems to be about three or so minutes of this 118-minute film without music. This film and Return of the Jedi the year before seem to start the trend of what is called wall-to-wall scoring, when the music seems to run from the beginning of the film to the end nonstop. What happens in that case is we tend to take the music for granted and aren't able to appreciate its return when it's gone. That's how I feel sometimes with the score to Temple of Doom. Yeah, I, I hear you. It, it is a wall-to-wall score, um, but it's incredibly dynamic, uh, say the latter 30 minutes or so of the picture with all that action. You know, for instance, we, we've been on quite a, an adventure in the first 20 minutes of the film, and once we hit India, the, the tonalities change. You know, it's much more serious, and uh, new themes are introduced subtly. Uh, sure, there's still lots of music, but it's uh, playing an important role dramatically. Again, when we finally get to Pancott, leading up to Willie and Indy's meeting in her room, the score shows up for only a, a few brief stingers during dinner while source music plays. However, in saying that, wall-to-wall scoring can be annoying if it's uh, if it doesn't have any direction or it's only filling up space. You know, in my opinion, Temple of Doom score features rich colorful, expressive orchestrations, and not one note is wasted. Nothing feels like filler. Even though there's so much music, every single cue serves a purpose and greatly enhances each scene. And just as a side note, this score might be the most thematically rich John Williams score. I mean, let's count the number of themes used in the film. He wrote music for Indy, Willie, Short Round, The Slave Children, Pancot Palace, the Temple of Doom, the Stones, and there are smaller motifs for the uh, the dead Chinese Emperor Nurhachi. The, there's a fanfare the Mar- for the Maharaja. Uh, the mine cars get their own theme uh, during that chase sequence. The, the British Relief have their own theme. I mean, there might be more that I'm missing, but it's it's absolutely com- incredible how melodic this score is. You're right about that, and what I appreciate it really about the score was getting more renditions of Indy's theme, which is the one complaint I have about Raiders of the Lost Ark is that it doesn't really play as much. Uh, true. Uh, yeah, this this score is full of Indy's, uh, Indy's theme, and I love it. And, and two of my all-time favorite renditions of Indy's theme uh, are played in this score. Uh, the first one takes place during the takeoff in Lao Shea's airplane after the Shanghai car chase.
And the second one comes during the escape into the mine car. You know, Indy has fought his way out of the mine. And one last daring feat, he swings across the mine towards the mine car with Willie and Shorty. And we get, you know, one more glorious rendition of Indiana Jones's theme. And of course, the the action material in this score is unreal. So, you know, with each indie theme performance, it's uh, orchestrated and performed differently, which keeps it from getting tired or feeling like it's being overused. Williams did this masterfully with the Imperial March in The Empire Strikes Back as well. So of all those themes that you mentioned earlier, Eric, which one would you say is your favorite besides indie's theme, of course? Wow, that's a... That's a really good question. Um, the slave children's music for sure. However, there's you know one theme that I was just dying to hear when the Temple of Doom uh, album or score was finally expanded a few years back. It's the Pancot Palace theme, and it can be doubled for Molaram's theme as well. It, it plays uh, in the morning after Indy and company leave their first camp. You know, it's the the scene where. Willie says, uh, I hate that elephant gag with the snake. Anyway, the cue's called The Scroll to Pancot on the album. And this is music that Spielberg himself calls some of the most beautiful Trek music he has ever heard. And so when Shorty says, Indy, look, we get our first view of Pancot, and William lets out this brilliant fanfare of blaring French horns introducing to us the first playing of his Pancot theme. It's really stunning. The, the French horn writing is off the chart in this score. And the theme returns moments later as Indy, Willie, and Shorty walk to the gates of Pancot. Again, more virtuosic French horn playing here. It's one of those minor themes that doesn't feel minor. And I think the Trek music we play could have fit in Lawrence of Arabia, too. And perhaps Maurice Jarre's music was a bit of inspiration. So you mentioned that you like the Slave Children's theme a lot, and I count it as my favorite new theme of the film, though Short Round's music is a very close second. If you just look at the melodic structure of the Slave Children's theme, 
you'll find that it is written in a more heroic tone than Indy's theme. I talked in my Raiders of the Lost Ark episode that Indy's theme often feels like it's trying to be a heroic with those leaps at the musical scale, but sometimes falls back down to signify Indy's failures. As we you talked about, Eric, he's hasn't been heroic except in this film. But the Slave Children's music continues up the musical scale, never falling down as it reaches its grand final statement. And the funny thing about that is the Slave Children don't really do anything heroic. Without Indy, they would still be hammering away in the underground caves. But putting all that aside, this is one of the best themes for children Williams has ever written and will ever write in his future. Here's the first statement of the theme when Indy hears children screaming. The notes still move up the scale, but the strings turn it into a sorrowful melody as we see hundreds of children at work. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that it's uh, more of a hero theme. And yes, that is indeed the case when played in very grand gestures. Uh, you know, it's it's extremely expressive, positive, uh, spirited, and bold. And even during its first playing where the shaman talks about Shiva making Indy's plane crash, there's a, a tender, quieter, heroic rendition of the theme that's played that might foreshadow Indy's heroics for the kids later on. However... It's then played again when the, the shaman explains in more detail what happened to the villager's stone that was stolen. It's performed in a more aching, sorrowful manner. It, it keeps playing, and then, you know, Indy's translating the shaman's final words where he says, children. He says they stole their children, which for me represents what the story is truly about. Not the stones, but the children. And the theme heard here is full of pain, loss, and suffering.
And yes, the theme really gets its big moment during Indy's rescue of the children later on in the film. It, it begins to play with that awesome shot of Indy in the mouth of the mine as the light from a mine car slowly illuminates Indy's face. You know, he looks more determined than ever. It's just one of Spielberg's greatest shots. So, you know, Indy punches a guard, the kids cheer, Indy, Willie, and Shorty begin freeing the slaves, all the while this incredible piece of music just sings away triumphantly. So, so yeah, it's one of the greatest themes to ever come out of the Indy saga. And you know what? They... They don't write themes like this anymore. As I said before, Short Round's theme often competes with the Slave Children's theme from my favorite in the movie. Usually, it's the one I'm currently listening to that gets that top spot. Shorty's theme also has a very, very heroic construction to it, reaching some pretty big heights for a kid named Short Round. In our introduction to this character, played by the fantastic Kiwi Kwan, his music is played on kid-like instruments, particularly in the woodwinds. As we get through the movie, Short Round's theme grows, and this is my favorite Trek music cue in the film. It's a little odd to play Short Round's theme as our trio begins the trip to Pancot Palace, but remember using Leia's theme for Ben Kenobi's death in Star Wars as another instance where a theme didn't seem to fit, but it worked very well.
Eric, I want to play one more instance of Short Round's theme because it's actually my favorite performance of it in the film. And it has nothing to do actually with the performance of the theme, but the orchestration of the instruments playing underneath it. We're at the point when Shorty breaks the chains after being shackled with the other kids for a brief moment. Williams has the strings, flutes, and other instruments flying all over the chromatic scale as Shorty makes his escape and gets his official heroic brass statement. Yes, Shorty's theme. It's playful, childlike, uh, heroic in its own little way. And, and yes, I absolutely love how it fits side by side with the slave children's theme. And then later on, it will help complement Indiana Jones's own theme. So taking like a 100 degree turn from the slave children and short round, the music written for the sacrifice scenes in the underground temple, it's the best source music John Williams has composed. Using Sanskrit text, Williams composed a very ominous piece that competes with Jerry Goldsmith's Avi Santani from The Omen as one of the best choral pieces for the movies. Only Duel of the Fates, which Williams would write 15 years down the road, comes close. And the musical accompaniment can only be done with percussion because those are the only instruments played during the cult's rituals. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the percussion writing is inspiring. And its uh, use in the Temple of Doom sacrifice music is, is incredibly haunting by you know mixing a sizable range of percussion. There's various shakers, tubular bells, drums, timpani, sound hoses, cymbals, and then you have the voices. Uh, this full choir singing Sanskrit, as you said, and then chanting our villain's name, Mola Ram.
and then the tempo speeds up to an almost uncontrollable pace. It's really chilling. I mean, there's hearts being ripped out, human sacrifice, and the entire congregation is going crazy. There's Molaram's evil laughter, boiling lava. I mean, if there was one scene that truly evokes Indiana Jones going to hell, well, this is it. And I mean, even as an adult, this is a terrifying scene that makes my hair stand on end. And a lot of that has to do with Williams's sinister source cue. I also want to point out the use of chorus in this film. Uh, There was, of course, chorus in Raiders, used brilliantly, and it returns here in Temple. Uh, Besides its use in the Temple of Doom source queue, uh, the best use, in my opinion, is during one of my all-time favorite Williams tracks. It's called Approaching the Stones. So this is where Indy swings down to the temple floor after the ceremony, and he retrieves the three already found Shankara stones without detection. So as he approaches the stones, the chorus is laid down by John Williams as a a bed underneath the orchestra. But as Indy moves closer to the stones, the chorus becomes more prominent and lyrical. Indy is hesitant at first to reach out and grab one of them, but when he does, the orchestra and chorus splash in unison. Indy then goes to put one of the glowing stones into his bag and notices the light dimming. He then brings the stone closer to the other stones and the rock's light comes to life with Williams' chorus belting out a high-range harmony at full volume with the fortissimo horns belting out an epic performance of the Shankara stone's motif while low brass pumps away underneath it all, giving the cue lots of weight. It's absolutely brilliant.
So if you don't mind, I'm just going to keep on continuing with some of my favorite cues, <laughs> like nocturnal activities. Um, I think it's just a delightful, funny, and, and incredibly well-written scene that takes place in Pancot Palace between Indy and Willie. And what an absolutely incredible cue it is, because it has to score not one, not two, not three, but four separate dramatic situations. So first, Williams scores the playful banter between Indy and Willie in a room at Pancot. And of course, Williams breaks out a gorgeous, full-blown rendition of Willie's theme. By the way, I love those quivering strings that open the piece and the beautiful woodwind writing just before the full-blown string version of the theme appears. I mean, it's something right out of a golden age love story. That's sublime stuff. However, Indy makes a crass comment. Willie then wants nothing to do with Indy and good on her. So the two get into a spat with plucked strings to heighten the comedy. You know, each character thinks the other will cave, doors are slammed, and then the waiting begins. then turns into a pendulum counting each grueling second that each character waits for the other to cave while at the same time they both gussy themselves up and the pizzicato strings return to liven up the cue a bit.
So when Indy can't believe that he's not going back to Willie, he is then attacked by a thuggy guard who is hiding in the shadows in his room. Williams pours on violent strings, woodwinds, and a ratchet. The cue definitely is inspired by Bernard Herrmann's murder music from Psycho. this great exchange of instruments at this very moment. When Willie's on screen, there's plucked strings. When we cut back to Indian danger, there's low brass and horns. And when Indy takes control of the fight, his theme appears briefly. So Indy wins the fight, returns to Willie's room. Willie obviously has no idea what has just happened and thinks that Indy has returned to her. Therefore, the scene is played for comedy once again uh, with more plucked strings. And when Indy feels a breeze coming into the room, Williams' tonality changes again. This time to chime percussion, eerie strings. And when Indy finds the hidden tunnel, Williams ends the cue with a playing of the Stones theme. So all of that in under six minutes. It's incredible musical storytelling. You know, Williams scores this film like a Carl Stalling cartoon, not quite Mickey Mousing his entire way through the scenes, but almost every major moment or tonality change is mimicked by the music. I really like this scene because it shows how much of a chameleon Williams is. He could write for action. He could write for comedy. He could write for romance. And, and in six minutes, and he can make it seem so seamless and not feel like it's kind of going jarring from one scene to another. 
So after all that, what about what comes right after that in the bug tunnel? Yeah, it's another brilliant set piece. Um, and Williams writes essentially a pure horror track with tons of urgency, but still it's a, a bit tongue-in-cheek. Um, so, you know, we get this bug tunnel march, and I guess that's what it's called. It, it starts off as a heavy lumber as Willie enters the bug tunnel, complaining about Indy and how she's had enough of this, but she has no idea what she's getting into. Then the music stops for about 10 seconds. During this whole sequence, there's no music. Yes, one of the few musical breaks in the film. Yes, but not for long. When we see the horrors of the other hole Willie has to stick her hand into, Williams' music comes alive again. As the spiked ceiling comes closer and closer to squashing Shorty and Indy, Williams's bug tunnel march picks up more and more speed. I mean, I can't imagine Williams trying to keep pace with the scene and his conducting, but he nails every beat perfectly. Thank you. 
So everything about this this scene is brilliant. The direction, the writing, the comedic moments are so perfectly timed. Uh, the dialogue, like, you know, we are going to die. The editing, the set design, the acting, it's a perfect Indiana Jones scene, and, and we get an amazing cue from John Williams. Yeah, as I said, comedy, action, all in one scene, and flawlessly and seamlessly done by John Williams. So we talked about a lot of music so far, and I know our listeners are screaming, what about the sword trick music? You've got to talk about that. And of course we will. I would not have asked you to pay attention to a particular piece of music in the Raiders of the Lost episode if I wasn't going to follow up on it here. So as a reminder, here's the piece of music I wanted you to log away in your brains from Raiders. And I should have also asked you to remember this part of the music as well because it will also be important. So on Raiders of the Lost Ark, these two musical moments come in the lengthy scene when Marion is kidnapped in a square in Cairo. While Indy is trying to find her, he encounters a man with a big sword. Instead of fighting him, Indy just shoots him dead point blank. Our hero finds himself in a similar situation in Temple of Doom, but this time he reaches for his gun and it isn't there. This 10 seconds of music brings back material from Raiders very skillfully relying heavily on Williams' Mickey Mousing skills to have the music hit on the arrival of the two swordsmen, their trickery with the swords, and Indy's comic reaction. Eric, what do you think about putting this gag in the movie? I love the callback to Raiders, but of course it doesn't make much sense chronologically since this film is a prequel and not a sequel. And then you have to ask yourself whether this is something Indy does all the time instead of it being a spontaneous one-off thing in Raiders. You know, I never thought about it that way, that this scene takes place before the one in Raiders. It still works, though. and It actually makes the scene in Raiders even more exciting because that time he does have his gun. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and I love the gag, whether it makes sense or not. I mean, Indy this time facing down two swordsmen instead of one, and he doesn't have a gun this time, and, and takes them on with his whip the way he was supposed to in the original swordsman fight in Raiders. Now, I could go on for hours about how impossible it is that anyone survived Indy's chopping of the bridge supports, but at least Williams' music made it fun to watch. I love the moment when the stones catch fire and the slave children's theme plays. Again, the thematic placement doesn't fit, but it works well. <laughs> 
Uh, so eventually, you know, Indy saves the day and he returns to the village with the stone. And while doing so, his theme plays proudly and triumphantly. You know, the village is thriving again. The shaman welcomes Indy back with a bow. Indy, Willie, and Shorty return the gesture. And then what happens next, for me, is just one of the greatest moments in the Indiana Jones saga. Indiana Jones, a true hero at last, looks back at the slave children, freed, running to their awaiting parents. You know, as Indiana Jones' theme continues to play, there's hugs, kisses, and tears. It's just uh, wonderfully uplifting. Indy then returns the stone that would have given him his fortune and glory, and interestingly enough, the slave children's music plays underneath that. So after Shorty's baby elephant douses Indian Willie mid-kiss, the end title begins. And here begins one of the greatest end credit suites of all time. From the wonderfully different pianissimo performance of the Raiders March in Counterpoint with Short Rounds theme. And, you know, this version, this performance is only heard in the film and never recorded properly on any commercial recording of the piece. And it segues into the Slave Children's Crusade. And then into... Short Round's theme, then into Willie's theme, and back to the Raiders' March. Everything is so beautifully blended together. This isn't a patchwork end credit piece like most end credit suites these days. This is a wonderful combination of thematic material put together by an expert composer that creates a perfect musical summation of the adventure we just experienced.
I agree 100%, Eric, that this is the best end credits music of all the Indiana Jones films. And that blending of Indy's theme and Short Round's theme just further illustrates what you talked about earlier about that connection those two have. And you'll notice, to kind of further that along, that Williams didn't blend in Willie's theme with Indy's theme. And speaking of the end credits, there's a name listed in there that I had never seen until I watched the film to reacquaint myself with it for this episode. Three minutes and 13 seconds into the credits of Temple of Doom, listed as one of the two matte photographers on the film, is David Fincher. Now, Fincher grew up adjacent to Hollywood royalty in Northern California, living just a few houses away from George Lucas. Fincher's connection got him a job at Lucas's Industrial Light and Magic in 1983 in the visual effects department, where his first two films were Return of the Jedi and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Not a bad way to start. I had to go back and watch the credits of Return of the Jedi to verify his involvement in that, and yes, there he is in the credits as the 11th assistant cameraman in the miniature effects department. (laughs) Fincher spent his 20s and 30s directing TV commercials and music videos, including Madonna's Vogue video. After that, he started directing iconic feature films such as Alien 3, Seven, Fight Club, and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Yeah, the talent level on this this film is unbelievable. And you'll also recognize another name, Joe Johnston. You know, he worked in the art department at ILM. And he was the original conceptual designer who created the final designs for many of the ships in Star Wars. And in Temple of Doom, he's credited as art director, and he actually won an Academy Award on Raiders of the Lost Ark as part of the visual effects team. And of course, many know Johnston's name as the director of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, The Rocketeer, Jurassic Park 3, and Captain America, The First Avenger, among others. Yeah, so many people got their starts in these big budget blockbusters and uh, probably credit Lucas and Spielberg to this day for giving them their start. Indeed. So Temple of Doom made a lot of money at the box office, more than $300 million, but critics were not as kind to the film as they were to Raiders of the Lost Ark. One of the harshest reviews came from Chicago critic Dave Kerr, who said this, quote, The film betrays no human impulse higher than that of a 10-year-old boy trying to gross out his baby sister by dangling a dead worm in her face. Ouch. Roger Ebert, who was more influential in his reviews, said the movie was, quote, the most cheerfully exciting, bizarre, goofy, romantic adventure since Raiders, and it is high praise to say that it's not so much a sequel as an equal. And in 1988, Neil Gabler echoed the sentiments of many people who have seen the film, saying, quote, I think in some ways Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was better than Raiders of the Lost Ark. In some ways it was less. In some total, I'd have to say I enjoyed it more. That doesn't mean it's better necessarily, but I got more enjoyment out of it. End quote. At the time, the film's extreme violence was a major source of contention. It was rated PG and lots of critics made sure to warn parents against taking their kids. Now, as you remember, a beating heart gets pulled out of a man's chest in the movie, crocodiles feast on falling thuggies, and eyes pop out of soups. Spielberg had a hard time appealing to the ratings board to keep the film from being rated R, but he succeeded. A few months later, with this film and another Spielberg project, Gremlins, pushing the envelope of acceptable PG content, 
The ratings board, with Spielberg's insistence, decided to create the PG-13 rating as a middle ground between PG and R. Besides that, Temple of Doom doesn't have the same kind of legacy as its predecessor. It won only one Oscar for its boundary-pushing visual effects, and John Williams' work lost at the Oscars to Maurice Jarre's music for the David Lean epic, A Passage to India. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was on its way to becoming the third highest-grossing film of 1984 after a record-setting opening weekend of nearly $34 million. Ghostbusters ended up being the top film at the end of 1984, though Beverly Hills Cop took in more money after it was released in mid-December. And it marked the first time since 1979 that the top film of the year didn't involve George Lucas and or Steven Spielberg. And while moviegoers across the country were cooling off with the movies that summer, Los Angeles was getting ready for another big spectacle. The Summer Olympics were going to be staged there in July and August 1984. As one of the largest cities in the world, Los Angeles was excited to bring the games back 52 years later and was going to do things never done before. One of those things was to commission a theme for the Olympics, not just for the LA Olympics, but for the Olympics as a whole that would hopefully have a life for many years. Now, almost every Olympics before that had an original composition written for it, but those pieces of music never enjoyed a life outside their respective Olympic Games. And who better to ask for such a composition than the American Composer Laureate John Williams? After he finished work on Temple of Doom, Williams spent spring 1984 working on something that would sound unique, but at the same time fall in line with the well-known Bugler's Dream by Leo Arnaud. It goes without saying that Williams knocked it out of the park as well. This music would become so intricately linked with the Olympics that I can't imagine watching the Olympics on TV without his music. And certainly Williams has to love it because there has to be wonderfully large royalty checks every time the Olympics comes around. Now, Eric, we hear this theme all the time on our NBC TV channel in the United States. Do you get the pleasure of hearing this on TV in Canada as well? Uh, yeah, well, we do get to, to see it here in Canada. I mean, we get the NBC broadcasts of the games here. And while I uh, prefer our Canadian-produced Olympic coverage, we get to see tons of events live uh, every day, and they don't necessarily have to be featuring Canadian Olympians. The NBC music is vastly superior. However, I do like the CBC Olympic theme. Um, however, over the past few Olympics, we've had some really bad songs 
that play as the thematic material. So I tune into NBC whenever I can to hear the uh, Bugler's Dream, and that then segues into Williams's Olympic fanfare and theme from 1984. So unfortunately, I have no recollection of the 84 games, but I have seen Williams's performance on YouTube. It's it's fun to watch that. I was only ten years old in the '84 Olympics, and I remember watching a lot of the Olympics, but I just don't remember that. And I may, I probably saw it, but didn't really understand the importance of what he was doing at the time. But having seen it all these years later, it gives it gives me goosebumps. I really love seeing it. Yeah, I think the only thing I remember from the '84 games was some guy in a rocket or like a jetpack, yeah. landing in the middle of the field or something like right. that. But that's that's about it. <laughs> it's weird. That is weird. So John Williams didn't win any awards for his work on Temple of Doom, but that Olympic fanfare earned him another nomination in Best Instrumental Composition at the Grammys. And for it, Williams won his sixth Grammy Award for Best Instrumental Composition, sharing the award this time with Randy Newman for Newman's theme to The Natural, which is a great piece of music. And after Williams finished conducting the orchestra during the opening ceremonies at the Olympics in July, he didn't take much time to enjoy his music being played on TV for two weeks straight. He was reuniting with an old friend for a much smaller film than Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. It was called The River, and it brought Williams back into the fold with Mark Rydell, who gave Williams the job of composing music for The Reavers in 1969, which set the maestro on a very lucrative and famed career path. I will be honest, I have never seen The River, so... I'm anxious to experience it and Williams' score. Yeah, it's a solid score. Not one I return to often, but I, I should. It's a score that I think would mark the end of Williams' golden era of film scoring, which began in 1977. Um, you know, The River's a, a nice little modern for the time Americana score. Uh, the main theme, though, I always thought would be uh, perfect as a main theme for a show like Dynasty or Falcon Crest. Um, with those kind of like cheesy drum beats, um, but uh, there's a there's a, an amazing cue called the ancestral home, and uh, it's a noble Americana flavored cue that brings back memories of some of Williams's other Americana flavored tracks, like the utterly brilliant "Leaving Home" from Superman. I mean, when you listen to it, just listen to those high register strings at the climax of the piece, and and tell me that it doesn't take you back to the wheat fields. Of Smallville, Kansas. Well, you're getting me excited for this. I can't wait to get to that score. <laughs> All right, so Eric, we set out to change hearts and minds about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, not just the film, but the score too. And I still have my criticisms about the nonstop use of music, but I do appreciate more aspects of it now. So thanks for that. And of course, thank you very much for being a part of the show. Oh, it was Absolutely my pleasure, Jeff. I, I love Indiana Jones, especially Raiders of Lost Ark, which is my favorite film and score of all time, but Temple of Doom needs more love. I don't think we needed to convince anyone of the merits of the score. However, I do hope your uh, listeners enjoyed the breakdown of one of Williams's most inspired works. And I'm not sure when Williams would write another score like this uh, with so much thematic goodness and variation and maybe Hook? And, uh, and I hope people will give this film another shot. It's a, a brilliant action-adventure spectacle that took chances, and I wouldn't change a frame or a note of music. Very wise words. Very interesting to hear that. 
And once again, I want to urge you to go to cinematicsound.net to hear the series of podcasts that Eric is producing. And while you're doing that, think of a review to leave for my podcast on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. And of course, you can always reach out to me at jeffswim at AOL.com. Until next time, everybody, the baton is down. <laughs>